Well, as you know, over the last uh, few Sundays, we have been wading our way through what may be the hardest passage in the Bible. Not to understand, necessarily, but to accept. And uh, this morning, I want to wrap up our study of what perhaps is the most loved and resented doctrine of all time, the doctrine of election. Lots of people believe that God's sovereign election is a dry, theoretical, impractical subject. Whereas on the contrary, nothing is more practical than a biblical understanding of God's sovereignty in man's salvation. And when rightly understood, the fact that God in eternity past unconditionally chose those who are saved shapes virtually every aspect of our lives as believers, including how we view ourselves, how we view others, how we look at the world, how we think about the afterlife, how we pursue holiness, how we pray, how we evangelize, how we worship. And this morning, I want to hopefully show you how practical the doctrine of election is to our lives as Christians. I was talking to an individual in our church this, just this week saying, hey, so uh, you kind of just dump this thing of election on us. Like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with all this. Um, and then said it was like a bad piece of roast beef. You just keep chewing on it and it just gets bigger and you don't know, you're not sure, what, do, I, do, I, do I swallow this? Do I spit this out? What do I do with this, right? And so I don't want any of you walking away from our study of Romans 9 simply puffed up with a bunch of theological information without considering the, the practical implications uh, for your life. And I definitely don't want any of you feeling like you've been left in some abstract labyrinth from which there is no way out. Ken, you, you, you put me in this thing and I, I, I don't know how to get out of here. There's no escape. There's no exit. I think when it comes to the doctrine of election, Christians typically fall into three basic categories. I would imagine all of you fit into one of these three categories this morning. Number one, there's those who won't understand election, and so they reject it. And frankly, they're angered by it. They resent it. Don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. Speak to the hand, right? Do not want to hear about election. Move on to something less divisive, more practical for my life as a Christian. So hopefully that's none of you. Uh, in that category. Secondly, there are those who can't understand it, and so they avoid it. And they're just basically confused by it. And so they're like, you know what? Just don't talk to me about it because it just makes my head hurt. Let's talk about other things that are easier to understand. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some of you in that category. Hey, can we get on to the next section of Romans? Okay. Why are you still talking about election? This is sermon number four. Can we move on now, right? 
And then there's a third category. A third category. And it's those who don't understand election, but embrace it. And those people are blessed by it. I would hope that that's the category that you're in. That's the category I, I'm in. I, I don't understand it all. I've got questions. It confuses me too from time to time. But I embrace it by faith because it's here in the Word of God. And I'm blessed by it. See, God never intended the doctrine of election to anger us or confuse us. He intended it to, to bless us. And those who reject it or try to avoid it miss out on the rich blessings that God is in store for those who by faith embrace it. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And again, if you're visiting with us today, we've been studying through the book of Romans. Paul's letters, letter to the believers in, in Rome. We're in Romans chapter 9, which is the, the clearest and strongest passage on election in the entire Bible. And second only to that, I would say, is Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. And here, Paul once again launches into this discussion on the doctrine of election. And uh, by the way, he doesn't wait till chapter 9. Uh, there's only chap- ch- six chapters in Ephesians, but he doesn't wait till somewhere midway in the letter uh, or towards the end of the letter. I mean, he just goes for it in the opening verses. He, he just gets right into it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you see how he's tripping over the word for blessing here? Blessed, blessed, blessing. The point is, hey, I just want you to know, believers in Ephesus, how blessed you are in Jesus Christ. And what's the first thing he says as he defines this blessing? Just as he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So he launches into this discussion of election. In love, verse 4, he predestined us to adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, again, not our will, our free will, but his free will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And so that's God's responsibility in salvation is predestination, choosing us before the foundation of the earth. Now look at Christ's part or responsibility. Verse 7, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, 
who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. That's the second section there is, is what, what, what was the role of the Son or Jesus Christ uh, in our salvation. So you have God, uh, his role was election or predestination. Uh, the role of the Son was redemption, uh, dying on the cross in our place. And then thirdly, notice the role of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, verse 13, in Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. All that to say, Paul was not bashful when it came to bringing up the subject of election. It was pervasive in his letters. It wasn't something he avoided or skipped over or left out. Listen to what John Calvin said about avoiding the doctrine of election or the doctrines of grace. He said, nothing in Scripture is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know. So nothing is taught in the Bible but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination in Scripture, lest we wickedly defraud them of the blessing of their God. Whoever then heaps odium or hatred upon the doctrine of predestination or election only reproaches God as if God had unadvisedly let slip something hurtful to the church. In other words, oops, God shouldn't have included that in his word because that would only end up hurting the church. And there are some that wrongly think that election should be avoided at all costs because it is hurtful or harmful to the church and to Christians. In other words, teaching or focusing on election will have negative effects. I'm sure you've heard some some of the negative comments that have been made about election over the years, maybe through individuals or things you've read. Uh, some of the most common concerns that people have about the doctrine of election is it produces a prideful attitude in people. And, and there are, I'll admit, there's a lot of cocky Calvinists out there that, that give Calvinists a bad name. They do a disservice to these biblical truths. Some would say it causes people to doubt their salvation. Well, uh, well how do I know if I'm one of God's elect or not? Well, repent and believe and you'll be one of God's elect. <laughs> it's as simple as that, Right? Or it causes uh, or encourages people to live a sinful life. That's one of the accusations. It removes the incentive to evangelize the lost. Or how about this one? It just creates a classroom full of intellectual theologians who only care about being right doctrinally rather than a church full of worshipful Christians who only care about being in love with Jesus. In case you're wondering if I'm making this up, let me quote for you, an opponent of the doctrines of grace. He said this, quote, nothing will deaden a church any more than adherence to Calvinism. 
Nothing will foster pride and indifference as will an affection for Calvinism. Nothing will destroy holiness and spirituality as an attachment to Calvinism. The doctrines of Calvinism will deaden and kill anything. Prayer, faith, zeal, holiness. Wow. That guy's got an axe to grind against the doctrines of grace and the doctrine of election in particular. But as we're about to see this morning, a clear understanding of the doctrine of election should have the exact opposite effect on Christians and on the church. So the question is, well, okay, how does understanding and embracing the doctrine of election practically affect my life or impact my life or change the way I live my life as a believer? Someone said it this way, Calvinism is not a set of doctrines, but a whole way of life. God has revealed the doctrines of grace not simply for our instruction, but ultimately for the transformation of our lives. And then they said this, quote, the true Calvinist ought to be the most outstanding Christian. So what are some positive, practical implications of Election. I want to give you five of them this morning, five positive, practical implications of election. Number one, it crushes our pride. <laughs> it crushes our pride, as opposed to producing a prideful attitude. Listen, all of us have a tendency to want to try to take credit for everything. But our salvation is something for which we can't take any credit. Why? Because we didn't do anything to deserve it, and we can't do anything to earn it. Even our repentance and faith is a gift granted to us by God. And therefore, God gets all the glory for our salvation, and we get none. That's Paul's point here in Ephesians chapter 1. Three times he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. To the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. It's all about giving glory to God. I think what's more is all of us not only try to take credit for everything, we, try to, we have a tendency to try to figure everything out. Don't we? But the doctrine of election is something you can't figure out. I mean, our, our puny, finite minds can't fully comprehend it. In fact, to the human mind, the doctrine of election seems illogical, even ridiculous. And I mentioned this previously that you know, when, you're, when you actually think about what we're saying here, that God predetermines who will be saved, but if we don't get saved, he punishes us. Okay, that doesn't sound fair. God holds us responsible to choose Christ, but our will is naturally inclined to reject Christ, and so we are unable to come to Christ unless God makes us willing. The Bible commands us to repent and believe, but repentance and faith are gifts that are granted to us by God. Again, this sounds like a bunch of a foolish double talk that flies in the face of human reason. And if you're thinking that, you're absolutely right. And so the doctrine of election forces us to admit our ignorance, our finiteness, that God is so much greater than us, wiser than us, smarter than us. Ephesians chapter, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 55, his ways are what? Higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. 
And so when confronted with the hard questions about election, we, we have no other choice but to say, you know what, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> Spurgeon said it this way. He said, I know nothing that is more humbling than this doctrine of election. I have sometimes fallen prostrate before it when endeavoring to understand it. But when I came near it, and the one thought possessed me that God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation, I was staggered with the mighty thought. And from the dizzy elevation down came my soul, prostrate and broken, saying, Lord, I am nothing, I am less than nothing, why me, why me? So all the questions that we have about the doctrine of election should be swallowed up by this one overwhelming question, and is that, that is, why did God save me? Why did he choose me? I don't understand that. And the reason that thought should be so amazing to us is because, if we're honest, we are the worst sinner we know. And if you're sitting and thinking, well, yeah, I kind of know why God chose me and not that guy. Not my neighbor, not my coworker, not that guy in my school, in my locker room. I Listen, I know why God, you don't get it. You're the worst sinner you know. The story is told of the English reformer John Bradford who saw a drunk lying in the gutter and he said this, there but for the grace of God lies John Bradford. See, Bradford knew his own heart well enough to realize that he was as depraved as anyone and that the only thing that prevented him from a life of drunkenness and despair was God's sovereign grace. I was talking to somebody even this morning about their testimony and not knowing exactly the moment of their salvation. Like, I don't have a date. I don't have a time. I don't have a place. Like, hey, you know what? That's okay. That's pretty common for those of us that grew up in a Christian home, have been going to church all our lives. It's hard to pinpoint sometimes exactly when it clicked, right? Uh, when you were truly born again. And I'll, my confession is growing up, Honestly, I was embarrassed to share my testimony because it sounded so boring. <laughs> like, well, I grew up in a Christian home and, you know, when I was seven, I, you know, prayed to receive Jesus Christ after I saw the wordless book and, you know, and pretty much, you know, followed the Lord through high school and that's when I got called to the ministry. And it's like, I, I was, originally I was kind of embarrassed to share my testimony. I was like, man, I wish I had a really cool testimony, one of those crazy testimonies of this, people doing this and getting into that and then God saving, rescued, delivered them from that. Well, you know what that embarrassment was a result of? Bad theology. That I didn't see myself as the worst sinner I knew, that I was just as depraved as the murderer and the rapist and the, 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 the terrorist and that you fill in the blank, right? That from God's perspective, I was hanging off the same cliff as everyone else, staring in the eyes on the same level as everybody else. And God in his grace and mercy reached down and had mercy on me. And so as my understanding of theology grew, specifically my understanding of total depravity that applies to the little kids that are growing up in the church and growing up in Christian homes, right? That you're just as depraved as the people that you're watching on the news every night 
killing people and raping people and sex trafficking and all that kind of stuff, in God's eyes, you're just as worthy of hell as they are. And see, a Calvinist has, is deeply aware of their own sinfulness. Because when we see God for who he really is, we see ourselves for who we really are, and we realize how desperately we are in need of his grace. Philip Ryken, in his excellent book, Doctrines of Grace, said this, quote, a penitent spirit is one of the true hallmarks, hallmarks of Calvinism. The true Calvinist is the man or woman who wakes up in the morning saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. This daily confession brings with it a healthy mistrust of one's own capacity for godliness and a corresponding dependence on God for his grace. So first of all, the doctrine of election crushes our pride. Is that practical? I think so. See, embracing the doctrine of election should cause a person to be extremely humble and arrogant Calvinist is an oxymoron. Or maybe I should just say is a moron, but that wouldn't be kind and gracious and humble, right? So it, it crushes our pride. Number two, it makes us secure. The doctrine of election makes us secure. Instead of making us doubt our salvation, it makes us more sure of our salvation. And again, we've been over this before, but just, again, to try to make this as practical as possible. Listen, if we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, then why would we think we could do anything to lose our salvation? On the other hand, if our salvation depends on us doing or not doing something, then our salvation is unstable as we are. But praise be to God, our salvation does not depend on our work, but on God's work through Christ. And in order for a person to lose their salvation, that would mean that all the work that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did on our behalf would have to be undone. Everything we just read here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, you could just, just rip it out of the Bible. It's, it, just, it would have to be undone. God initiated the process of salvation in us, and he always finishes what he starts. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Some translations say, and he will also do it. Jude 24. Familiar promise here. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So the Bible makes it clear that, that our salvation is based on the eternal, unchanging, electing love of God, and therefore it is secure. We talked about that in Romans chapter uh, 8 verses 29 to 39, right? That there is nothing 
that can separate us from the love of God. No one can bring an accusation against us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And again, this is what we know as the doctrine of eternal security, which is all over the scriptures, particularly though in the Gospel of John. Jesus himself said this, John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, the elect, if you will, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. Later in John, John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Talk about double security. We're not only in the hands of Christ, but we're also in the hands of God, the hands of the Father. We're doubly kept safe and secure. And I've shared this illustration with you before, but when we were teaching our kids to swim, right, they jumped in the, the, the deep end of the pool and, and they caught a, you know, a headlock on us, right, thinking that them not drowning was all dependent on them holding on tightly. When they could have actually let go completely and they would have been, what, held because I was holding them tightly. They, were, they weren't going down. As long as I was in, they weren't going down. And, and some Christians are like holding on so tightly thinking, oh, I got to keep my grip. And if I lose my grip, I'm going to be lost forever. And no, God's got you. And see, this doctrine of eternal security is inseparably linked with the doctrine of election. It, it, it's a natural byproduct of election. And if you don't accept the doctrine of election, then you resign yourself to live the rest of your life wondering if you're saved and worrying that you might do something that will cause you to lose your salvation. The doctrines of grace are so helpful in, 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 in helping us have security, even when it comes to trials and sufferings that we go through in life. We have the confidence that God causes what? All things to work together for good, and will ultimately glorify himself through our pain and our trouble. So we don't have to react to trouble and difficulty like a wave of the sea being blown and tossed in by the wind. Why? Because God's sovereignty serves as an anchor for our soul. It makes us secure. It makes us secure. Thirdly, Believing or embracing the doctrine of election leads us to holiness. It leads us to holiness instead of encouraging us to sin, which was what Paul knew would be a natural response to his teaching on the sovereignty of salvation and, and, and that we're saved by grace through faith alone. It has nothing to do with what we do or don't do. And some would naturally think, well, that's a sweet deal. Sign me up for that. I can do anything I want and still go to heaven? I mean, as long as I got my get out of hell free card, I'm good to go. And of course, Paul responded, may it never, what? May it never be. 
How could you even think that? If you, if you believe that, then you obviously miss the whole point of election or salvation. Romans 8, verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become formed, to become conformed to the image of his Son. Even here in Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us, uh, excuse me, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Colossians, Colossians 3.12, so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. How about 1 Thessalonians 4.7 in the, in the context of teaching on sexual purity or sexual sanctification, Paul says this, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. In other words, God saved you to sanctify you, to make you like Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, writing to those who are chosen, Peter says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. See, when we understand that, that God chose to save us, not just to keep us out of hell, but to make us holy as he is holy, then election becomes a powerful incentive to live a holy life. And and no one who is truly saved will, will purposely abuse or take advantage of God's grace. Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? The more I sin, the more grace God will show me? No, that's not the mindset of a true believer. On the contrary, out of love and gratitude, they'll strive to obey and honor him with their lives. They'll, they'll naturally, feel, naturally feel constrained by his grace to surrender and commit their life to follow and obey Christ. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Again, we're not saved by works, we're saved for works. Spurgeon said it this way, nothing can make a Christian more holy than the thought that he is chosen. Shall I sin, he says, after God hath chosen me? Shall I transgress after such love? In other words, shall I sin against such great love after God has shown such great love towards me? Why would I sin against such great love? Shall I go astray after so much loving kindness and tender mercy? No, my God, since thou hast chosen me, I will love thee, I will live to thee, I will give myself to thee to be thine forever, solemnly consecrating myself to your service. And so embracing the doctrine of election leads us to holiness. Number four... Number four, it motivates us, election motivates us 
to witness. Instead of removing our incentive to evangelize the lost, it actually motivates us to witness. Now, hopefully if you were disengaged up to this point, now you're engaged because this is probably the number one criticism leveled against the doctrine of election or against Calvinism. People assume that it, it kills evangelism. That, that a strong belief in the doctrine of election not only undermines the plausibility of evangelism, but eliminates the necessity of evangelism. In other words, how, how can I tell someone that they need to be saved if they may not be one of God's elect? So is that even plausible? Can I even do that? Can I even offer this person salvation if they're not one? Right? See, now we're taking the doctrine of election to its logical conclusion, which we shouldn't. Or, how about this? If God has chosen everyone who is going to be saved, then they'll be saved whether I witness to them or not. I confess, I've had that thought. When I'm sitting on an airplane, for example, and I'm exhausted, and all I want to do is close my eyes and catch a nap, or I've got something to prepare and work on, or a book to finish, you know, uh, a reading, and I really don't want to engage the person next to me, I think sinfully, wrongly, well, you know what, if they're elect, somebody else will tell them, because God has a means to, you know, I can't mess this up, right? That's, that's messed up, thinking, okay? I'm confessing that. And, and I agree that, that if election is misunderstood or misapplied, it can result in apathy and fear and fatalism. And I've met people who, who can clearly articulate the doctrine of election better than anyone that I've ever heard articulate it, but they seem to have no passion for the lost. Or they're so afraid that they might say something or do something that, that would appeal to man's will or emotions. That they, they, don't, they don't do anything to reach out to them. That, by the way, is what's called hyper-Calvinism. Which when most people want to argue with you about you know, Calvinism and, 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 and give Calvinism the Heisman and don't want anything to do with it, right? They're, in their minds, they're thinking about hyper-Calvinism. Like, you know what? Hey, God's already chosen everybody and we'll just sit back and watch it all play itself out. That's hyper-Calvinism. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. When properly understood and applied, the doctrine of election actually provides the main motivation for us to witness to other people. And if this is a, something that you've wrestled with in your mind, I, I commend to you J.I. Packer's classic work, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. How in the world does God being sovereign in salvation fit with evangelism? And he does a masterful job, short little book, by the way, it's just this small little book, but if you've never read it, I would encourage you to read it. it it's outstanding. Let me, let me tease you a little bit with a quote from Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Packer writes this, There is abroad today a widespread suspicion that a robust faith in the absolute sovereignty of God is bound to paralyze evangelism by robbing one of both the motive to evangelize and of the message to evangelize with. He said, This is nonsense. So far from inhibiting evangelism, Faith in God's government and grace is the only thing that can sustain it. 
For it is the only thing that can give us the resilience that we need if we are to evangelize boldly and persistently and not be daunted by temporary setbacks. So far from being weakened by this faith, therefore evangelism will inevitably be weak and lack staying power without it, without a strong, robust faith in the doctrine of election. Some fear belief in the sovereign grace of God leads to the conclusion that evangelism is pointless since God will save his elect anyway, whether they hear the gospel or not. The truth is just the opposite. So far from making evangelism pointless, the sovereignty of God is the one thing that prevents evangelism from being pointless. For it creates the possibility, indeed the certainty, that evangelism will be fruitful. Apart from it, there is not even a possibility of evangelism being fruitful. Were it not for the sovereign grace of God, evangelism would be the most futile and useless enterprise that the world has ever seen, and there would be no more complete waste of time under the sun than to preach the Christian gospel. That's good stuff. And, and what he's pointing out there, and I think there's two things that we need to be clear about the doctrine of election as it relates to evangelism. Number one is the doctrine of election is for believers, not unbelievers. I never even think about the doctrine of election when I'm sharing the gospel with someone. It's not something you share as part of your message. It's something that you share with a person after they're saved. It's, it's, it's remember the doorway illustration. All they, all they need to know to get to heaven is whosoever will may come. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's all they need to know. And so they repent and believe and they walk into to to the doors of heaven or into the doors of the church and they open up their Bibles and they look back and they go, oh, chosen before the foundation of the earth. Ah, see, election is a family secret, okay? It's it's the secret of the family of God, the children of God. Secondly, and and I think more importantly, God's sovereignty, again, we've said said this two weeks ago, does not nullify man's responsibility. And it applies to unbeliever's responsibility to repent and believe, and it also applies to our responsibility as believers to preach the gospel to all nations. Matthew 28, 19, go into all the world, right, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So that's our responsibility. We've been given a command. We've been commanded to proclaim the good news of salvation. Now, why is that? Here's the key. Don't miss this, okay? God has not only chosen who will be saved, but he's also chosen the means by which they will be saved, which is by what? Hearing and responding to the gospel. Romans chapter 10, and we're going to see this in a few weeks Lord willing, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they've not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a, what? Without a preacher. And that's not just your preacher up here, that's you. Your your family member, your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, your teammate, your whatever, they need to hear the gospel. How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. They must hear the gospel message. And that's how we get to play a part in God's plan of salvation. How cool is that? That we're his messengers. John Piper 
said this about the doctrines of grace. He said, these truths remind me that evangelism is absolutely essential for people to come to Christ and be saved. People aren't going to get saved unless they hear the gospel. That is the means that God ordained for people to be saved. He can choose everybody, he, anybody he wants, but the, the, they're all going to get saved the same way, and that's hearing the gospel. He says there is great hope for success in leading people to faith, but that conversion is not finally dependent on me or limited by the hardness of the unbeliever. So it gives hope to evangelism, especially in the hard places and among the hard peoples. It is God's work. He says, throw yourself into it with abandon. Instead of being a church full of people say, well, you know, we believe that God's chosen who's going to be saved, so we'll just kind of sit back here and wait for them to come. They'll show up eventually. No, no, no. We go out there and we throw ourselves into the work of evangelism with abandon. Because, why? Because we know that God has chosen people to be saved from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, which motivates us to use every resource available to us to share the gospel in every possible way with every possible person with the confidence that some will be saved. You might face a lot of rejection. It's okay. All we have to do is preach the gospel. And lead the results to God. We're just out there throwing seed. We're just out there watering. We're out there weeding. We're, we're, and you're, we're waiting on God. It's like the farmer in Mark chapter 4. He went out and he planted the, planted the, the seed. And, and he, he, went, he, went, he went to bed. He went and slept. Woke up the next door and there's a, there's a garden full of vegetables. And he's like, how did that happen? Well, God did that. And beloved, listen, that liberates us from feeling like the results are determined by the effectiveness of our method or the eloquence or persuasiveness of our message. Ultimately, God determines whether or not a person gets saved. It's not our responsibility to save anyone. All we have to be concerned about is making sure we're getting the message right and we're getting the message out. takes all the pressure off. You don't have to close the deal, if you will. I was talking to a, a friend uh, uh, this week, called me. He had an opportunity to perform a funeral for one of his coworkers, and he was just asking me for some counsel and advice, how to go about it, and, and uh, what to say and what not to say, what to do and what not to do. And, and in fact, it, it was interesting he was the guy, this guy who I was talking to, I did his mother's funeral. And as I was talking to him this week, I, I was reminded of that experience. And I said, hey, man, just to remind you, when I did your mom's funeral, and his mom was not a believer, and, and I knew that a lot of the people that were coming to the funeral were not going to be believers. And uh, it was going to be a hostile crowd, if you will. And I was sitting back, I remember sitting back in the funeral home and they, they have a little place for where your pastor can sit and get, you know, pray and get your thoughts ready and go over your notes, whatever. And I was back there while everybody was filing in, I'm back there and I remember just feeling this anxiety, this fear of going in there and preaching the gospel to this group of folks that the person that was talking about wasn't a believer and they weren't believers and 
They didn't come to hear the gospel. They probably came to hear a bunch of niceties about this person and let's get on with life, right? As I was sitting there, I just remember God bringing to mind, in my mind, the sovereignty of salvation. That, that God already ordained this day. He already ordained who would be there. He already ordained that, that I would be the one speaking. He gave me a text to preach from. And at the end of the day, all I had to do was be faithful to get up and be used by God just to share the, the good news of salvation and, and trust Him and leave the results to Him. And I remember just being flooded with peace and all that anxiety went away, all that pressure I was feeling, it just, just disappeared. And I walked into that funeral chapel uh, as light as a feather, if you will. And, and it was as I expected. It was a very hostile crowd. I mean, it, you could tell people were not liking what I was saying. And it was awkward. But I just kept right on going and trusting the Lord. God, you're sovereign. And there are people out here, I'm just confident, there's people out here that, that, you, that you've ordained to be here to hear this message today. And I'm just going to trust you in that and you're going to sort it all out in the end. We just had Donald Whitney here uh, a couple weeks ago at our Spiritual Life weekend, and, and uh, he, uh, probably best known for that book, Disciplines, uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, and uh, in his chapter on evangelism, I love the analogy he uses. He says that sharing the gospel is like walking around in a thunderstorm handing out lightning rods. That'd be kind of fun, huh? Here's one for you. Here's one for you. Oh, here's one. For, oh, you need one of these right here. You're going to be needing this, okay? <laughs> he said, you don't know when the lightning is going to strike or who it will strike, but you know what it's going to strike, the lightning rod of the gospel. So we, here we are. We're just out there handing out lightning rods. We're just sharing the gospel, right? And then step back and watch God work in his way and his time. And it's all up to him. It's all his work. It's all for his glory. And so again, understanding the sovereignty of God and salvation, the doctrine of election, it motivates us to evangelize. And then lastly, number five, understanding, embracing the doctrine of election stimulates us to praise. It stimulates us to praise instead of just creating a bunch of analytical theologians. Someone wrote this, something that election is all right for the theological classroom, but that is, has, has no place at all in the pulpit. Leave it in the seminary class, pastor. Just, just tell us about how to get along as a husband and wife here and how to raise our kids and how to manage our money. And don't talk about this election stuff. That was good for the seminary classroom, but not, not for the pulpit. He says, such an attitude is unbiblical and is based on a lack of knowledge of what the Bible says about election. For election, instead of being a horrible doctrine, when understood biblically, is perhaps, you ready, the finest, warmest, most joyous teaching in all the Bible. It will cause the Christian to praise and thank God for his goodness in saving him a good-for-nothing, hell-deserving sinner. That's how God's sovereign grace affected the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter 1, if you're still there. Here was the, the premier persecutor of the church. This guy was 
going around killing Christians. Now he has been radically born again, saved, and now he's the premier apostle of the church. And he, he never got over the fact that God had, had graciously chosen him before the foundation of the, the world to serve him of all people, the foremost of sinners, the worst sinner that ever lived. He talks about that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, basically said, you know, the reason why, I've concluded the reason why God saved me is so people could look at me and go, well, if God saved Paul, he could save anybody. And so his heart was just always filled with, with wonder and gratitude to God for his salvation. His mouth just gushed forth with praise and worship. And, and Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is just one unbroken outburst of praise. It's just one long sentence in the Greek. He just can't stop. He just can't turn the faucet off. It just keeps coming. And what I love about Ephesians 1 is Paul wasn't writing an article for some theological journal. He wasn't lecturing in some seminary class. He wasn't involved in some intellectual debate with an Arminian. He was on his knees with his hands lifted towards heaven, and he was lost in wonder and awe and worship of God. And see, when the reality of, of God's sovereign grace in our salvation grips us like it did Paul, it will release us to worship him like never before. You may remember me sharing my experience in seminary years ago now. It's hard to believe it's some 20, boy, 25 plus years, 30 years, because we got married and I started seminary, so close to 30 years ago. I'm sitting there in Theo 2, Theology 2, and my favorite professor, Dr. George Zemeck, is waxing eloquent on... Sin and salvation, that's Theo 2, Theology 2, you cover the doctrines of sin, harmardiology, the doctrines of salvation, soteriology, and so he was waxing eloquent on all of these things, and he was explaining the doctrine of election. And I'm sitting there with my notebook open, in the olden days, you used to have a spiral-bound notebook, and you were writing down everything, the guy was writing up on the board, right, everybody's got a laptop now, and, or just recording it, um, but I was writing down feverishly everything, everything I could, what he was saying. And, and, and for the first time, the reality, what he was saying, as I was writing, it just gripped me. And this wave of emotion came over me, and I began to cry in class. And I remember that the thought I had in my mind, the prayer that, that I prayed was, God, would... Don't ever let me take one of your precious truths, your precious doctrines, and just write it down in a notebook and put it on a shelf somewhere, but let it sink into my heart and my life so it changes the way that I, I see you and I see myself and I see other people and it changes the way I live my life. And that's my prayer for our church my prayer for you, that, that, that you wouldn't just sit here, right? It'd be very easy to do that, for us just to sit around and discuss things like the doctrine of election and, and pride ourselves that we're doctrinally correct about everything. 
we need to realize that none of this stuff matters if it doesn't change the way we live our lives. And so when correctly understood and studied, the doctrine, doctrine, theology, always leads to greater devotion to Christ. Sinclair Ferguson, we're reading a book by him called Maturity with our men on Friday mornings. This is what he wrote. He said, quote, The goal of theology is the worship of God. The posture of theology is on our knees. There's a whole point of discussing the doctrine of election is that we would be more humble and more confident and more holy and more faithful and more bold in evangelism and more thankful and more worshipful. John Stott said it well, and I quote, election is an indispensable foundation of Christian worship in time and eternity. You might have a hard time with it now. Well, you better get used to it because you're going to be dealing with it all for all eternity if you're a Christian. It is the essence of worship to say, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. If we are responsible for our own salvation, either in whole or even in part, we would be justified in singing our own praises and blowing our own trumpet in heaven. But such a thing is inconceivable. God's redeemed people will spend eternity worshiping him, humbling themselves before him in grateful adoration, ascribing their salvation to him and to the lamb and acknowledging that he alone is worthy to receive all praise and honor and glory. Why? Because our salvation is due entirely to his grace, his will, his initiative, his wisdom, his power, and his love. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this section of Romans that has really been a joy to go through, but it's also been a a challenge to go through. And Lord, I pray that this morning's message would be a helpful appendix or conclusion just to remind us of the importance of this doctrine and why we study it, why we need to talk about it, why we need to think about it, why we need to find a place for it somewhere in our theology, because it ultimately was intended by you to bless us and to change us and transform us more into the image of Christ. And so, Lord, would we be a bunch of gracious theologians here that while we try to go deep in the truths of your word, that we wouldn't be jerks about it. We wouldn't be arrogant. Lord, we would be gracious. We would be humble. We would be generous. We would be sweet and kind, gracious in how we interact with others. And Lord, would we also never fall into the trap of hyper-Calvinism where we just sit back and become fatalists and just wait for you to do your will and your work and forget that you want us to be a part of your work and that it's your will, part of your will is that we be involved in your work. 
that we share the gospel with others. So accomplish your purposes in our lives, Father. Help us to flesh out these implications in our daily lives. We pray this week in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have a couple of our elders, as always, available to serve you uh, this morning. Any physical, spiritual needs you might have, uh, please don't hesitate to come and, and visit with one of our elders, and they'd love to serve you. Um, again, if you're visiting with us, thanks so much for being here. Don't forget to drop off your uh, welcome card there, your uh, visitor card by the Welcome Center. Look forward to meeting you afterwards, but uh, you guys have an awesome week. Uh, you're dismissed. <laughs>